We work in communities across the country, and if you're in New Mexico, you're going to have a really different diet and preference for food than, say, if you're in Kentucky or Massachusetts or California. And so food equity means taking into account all of those things, the access, the affordability, but also the appropriate kind of food for your culture. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright, visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. This is your host, Mike Hancocks, and this is one in a series of podcasts we recorded at the 2017 New Partners for Smart Growth Conference, which was held in St. Louis, Missouri. I want to encourage our listeners to go to our website, infiniteearthradio.com, and sign up to get our weekly email, which will give you a heads up about our future podcast episodes and other big sustainability and equity issues in the news and media. On our website, you can also access all our past podcasts, along with show notes and resources from today's podcast. That's infiniteearthradio.com. Our topic this week is food equity and what can be done at the local level to address food insecurity. My guest today is Julia Friedgood, Assistant Vice President of Programs at the American Farmland Trust. Julia, welcome. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So, Julia, tell us what the American Farmland Trust is all about. The American Farmland Trust is a national nonprofit organization. We were founded in 1980 to protect farmland for farming. So our mission is to save the land that sustains us by protecting farmland, promoting sound farming practices, and keeping farmers on the land. Fantastic. So tell me a little bit about you personally. I like to let the listeners know who they're listening to. Why is farmland important to you, and why is issues like food equity? How did this become a passion for you? Oh, that's a great question. Um, it probably takes me back to my roots. But, I mean, for me, farmland is personal. It's both something aesthetic that's important to me because I grew up in New York City, and I now live in a town of about a 1,000 people. So I'm sort of an urban refugee, if you will, and I like to be surrounded by open fields and, and forests and sort of natural lands and rural economies. But I also worked on farms when I was a kid, and farmers were very kind to me, and kind to me when I had some sort of personal hardship. My dad died when I was 11, and, and it was farmers who actually sort of embraced me and their family and took me in and taught me how to drive a tractor and take care of hogs and, and go haying and stuff. And so for me, I think it, it's just a kind of a personal connection. My mom grew up on a small family farm, and it just sort of it goes back maybe for many generations. Fantastic. So your topic at this year's New Partners for Smart Growth Conference was um, improving food equity. Could you explain for our audience what food equity is? Well, I guess for us, and in the context of the project that I was talking about, which is a project American Farmland Trust is part of called Growing Food Connections, 
And the goal of that project is to strengthen community food systems by supporting small and mid-sized farmers who are growing food within their communities and regions, and also by improving food access, food security, or food equity. And so for the food equity piece, we're really looking at making sure that all people in a community have access to affordable food that's culturally appropriate, the kind of food they're familiar with and like to eat, and that it's sort of readily available. You know, they don't have to travel for miles to get to it. And it really does mean that you have to take into account the culture of each place. So we work in communities across the country, and if you're in New Mexico, you're going to have a really different diet and preference for food than, say, if you're in Kentucky or Massachusetts or California. And so food equity means taking into account all of those things, the access, the affordability, but also the appropriate kind of food for your culture. And so, you know, uh, don't take this question the wrong way, but is, is this a real problem? Like, what to the extent that... Food insecurity is a real problem. Can you give us some sense of the scale of that problem? Oh, my goodness, I should have my stats in front of me. But, I mean, you know, it can be 50 million people in the country are affected by food insecurity. And so that means, you know, lack of access to to food on a regular basis. It doesn't mean that they're starving necessarily, but it does mean that they don't have food access every day, three meals a day, healthy food. It's gotten a little bit better in the last few years, but it's still worse than it was before the Great Recession, and it's still a problem that we need to work on. And and you find it especially in low-wealth communities and communities of color. And, and rural communities. And rural communities, yes. Low And rural communities often are low-wealth. And, and so you don't have a lot of access to outlets for shopping in a lot of rural communities. And you'll often find sort of at the end of a country road, you know, that you'll have maybe an older population. It, it affects the elderly often, and it affects children often. What needs to be done if I'm in a community that is food insecure and I've got food equity issues, how do we attack that problem? <laughs> That's not an easy answer. So I think what I'll do is really talk about sort of what we're doing and and what we've been doing through this project called Growing Food Connections. And we started just by trying to understand the problem and doing research on what people are doing about the problem. Our focus is on, on planning and policy, so kind of what local governments can do to address these issues. And we found that, you know, by and large, certainly until maybe five, ten years ago, this was an issue pretty much left either to, you know, public food assistance programs like food stamps or SNAP now, or to the private sector. But now communities are getting engaged and getting involved. And so there are lots of ways they can do it. And we sort of start with the need to bring people together, either in a formal or an informal kind of planning process, to envision the food system that they want and to set goals, and then to sort of follow through what would be a planning process to identify what their assets are and then also sort of what their challenges are. And then we like to take an asset-based approach to look at what resources you have in your community to solve your own problems and then bring people together to solve them together, working with local residents as well as with people in positions of authority or power like in government or people we might call the gatekeepers, you know, and those could be leaders of nonprofit organizations as well. 
or businesses related to the food system, but I think that really to solve these problems, you have to go to the people who are affected by the problems and find out what, what it is that's causing those problems. Because often people sort of who are well-educated and have studied the issue assume certain things, like education is the problem. And in fact, maybe education isn't the problem, it's jobs are the problem, or transportation is the problem. And so if you don't go to the people who are really affected by food insecurity, you don't really find out what the real problems are. So that takes building trust and building relationships. Fantastic. So do you have any examples of communities that are you know, doing this right, that are making progress? So yeah, so through the project, we studied what we call communities of innovation. And so these would be places across the country that have really addressed food system issues through planning and policy and building partnerships and making investments. And so there's some great examples across the country, some places that people know about a lot, like work that's going on in Seattle or Minneapolis or Baltimore. There are also some really interesting places like Region 5 in Minnesota, Staples, Minnesota, which is a more rural area where they got people together and started to address these issues. So there's some really good examples. And then what we've been doing now, and I, I personally think is really fascinating, we kind of looked at, you know, where might you find the best practices or maybe it's really best principles? And then how do you apply them to areas that we call communities of opportunity, which are places that were struggling with food insecurity but also had capacity to produce food within their community that had a small farm infrastructure and sort of natural resources that could support food production but had readiness and willingness to change, a desire to change, but also low connectivity between those. And so we went through a very elaborate process where people applied, and we had about 200 applications from communities, and we ended up choosing eight communities to work with. And we're actually learning from them because they actually are amazing examples of what can be done. And so they're more at the start of it. So some of those communities and some of them include places like Doherty, Georgia, which is in southwest Georgia, or Doña Ana and Luna counties in, in southern New Mexico, Polk County, North Carolina. So there are a lot of places doing really innovative work, either that have been doing it for four or five years and are sort of established, or that are just getting into the game. And if anybody's interested in that, we have case studies of the communities of innovation. We have briefs, and then we have more extensive case studies that people can learn from on our website, www.growingfoodconnections.org. Fantastic. On that website, is there other information? Like, so if I wanted to learn, not just look at case studies, but like, is there a process? Is there a, a guide on how I can start looking at these issues in my community? Is that kind of information available there too? So yes, and now, now if it's okay, I'll make a little plug. Right now we're in final review of a community guide to planning for agriculture and food systems that actually gets at all of that and it sort of gives the context and then it gives sort of principles and practices and then it has a really extensive toolbox of what local governments can do to address these issues. 
it's geared toward a more general audience. Like we hope that planners and local government officials will read it and use it, but it's really written for community partners, for farmers, for people who want to get involved at the local level and move things forward. Because one of the things we've learned is that it's really important to engage local government, and local government can be a great friend. Um, they can be a foe, <laughs> so they can kind of support these activities or they can thwart them. And sometimes they actually get in the way, not because they're ill-intentioned at all, but just because they don't know about what else is going on other places. And so they pass a law that makes a regulation that makes sense in one context, um, but won't allow people to process food on their farm. So, you know, they will oppose, you know, honey production or jams and jellies or making pies or something like that. And they mean to be protecting public health and safety, but in fact, they're hurting agricultural viability, that kind of thing. And so the idea is that the private sector often is really innovative, and, and that's both the for-profit and the non-profit part of the private sector. And they're kind of moving and shaking and getting things going, and you need government to help sustain that and make sure that it all works together in a way that does protect the public interest, but also gives people opportunities to create new jobs, new entrepreneurial activities to support agricultural viability as well as food security. So you're developing that guide. How are people going to get access to that? So that will be live on our website. We are now in February. So I would say that that should be posted in live by April. Okay. Because we're going to, it's already designed, we're going through final review, and then it will be a, sort of a living web document with links so that if you're reading about a certain policy, you can go directly to that policy and read it and pop back out into the document. And then we also will have some print copies. But the idea is for it to be kind of a living document. We'll be posting it on, on the Growing Food Connections website as well as on our Farmland Information Center www.farmlandinfo.org, which is American Farmland Trust's information center, so that people who, who come to it can get connected not just to policies, but also to resources to help them move forward. And the idea is that we'll then sort of take it on the road to try to get it out there. We're going to get it out through the communities we're working with. We hope to be working with American Planning Association to alert planners about it. We hope the local government commission will get the word out. And so if we can get the word out, then lots of people can use it and give us input. And the hope is we can keep updating it over time. Fantastic. You know, I know that these issues are complicated and a lot of the solutions are about local context, right? So what applies in one community doesn't apply in another. But I'm, I'm going to try to, for our, the sake of our audience, just kind of give them a feel for how to improve food equity. What are like... And if you could wave a magic wand and fix three problems or change three dynamics, what would they be? What are the, what are the, some of the bigger issues that are, are creating an obstacle to uh, more widespread food security and food equity? Wow, that's, that's a big question. So only three. I mean, I think... Well, if you had five, that's... Well, I know. <laughs> what are the big rocks? If there's... You know, I mean, I think we have a food system that's biased towards certain kinds of access and against other kinds of access. And so, you know, one of the things that we find in a lot of our communities is you're growing food and commercial agriculture is sort of wholesale oriented. So you're growing food 
and then you're shipping it out of your community to markets that might be China, it might be domestic markets. And then you're importing all of your food from outside of the community. So you have this sort of gap in between what you're producing and selling wholesale and what you're consuming and buying retail. And so I think one of the places to start is, you know, what, what people might call import substitution, but closing some of that gap. And that doesn't mean tearing down the parts of the food system that work. The global food system does supply a lot of food to a lot of people efficiently and cheaply and well. And if you can afford it, you can get really good food. And, and provide some level of sustainability and resiliency and, and s- sustainability, right? I mean, if, if you live in a community where you have a really bad growing season, you're it's not nice going to starve because there's food somewhere exactly. else that's going to come. So, there's, so you don't want to tear that down, right. right? We don't want to tear that down. What we want to do is augment that in a way that meets the needs of all people because there are people who are left out of that system. And two of the key groups that are left out of that system are a lot of the small and mid-sized farmers who are producing food and can't make enough money to really make that work, and then low-income consumers who can't afford to buy the food or are just sort of geographically separated from the food. I mean, there are some institutional barriers in between. So so the idea is what do you do to, to build more wealth within the community to support the food system sort of all the way through the system? And in fact, for a really sustainable system, you also want to be dealing with waste and, and the environmental implications of all of it. So I think that's the place to begin is what is appropriate to do locally. And when I think locally, I think in pretty big regions. I, you know, I mean, growing food connections were focused on sort of what county government can do. But, but really, counties operate in a regional system, and it's often multi-state. And, and I think as, as we think about sort of agricultural landscapes that support food production or food sheds, if you will, then you take kind of a larger look at it, and then that means that some of those things that maybe your community didn't get strawberries, but you can go 100 miles and you get strawberries, you still have basically local strawberries coming into your market. So I think that's one of the things to do, is to really assess what you need locally and figure out what you can do locally to solve those problems, recognizing that I like to think of food systems as kind of matryoshka dolls, you know, those Russian stacking dolls, right? Right. And so you have the global food system, which is sort of the big mama doll, and then you have the sort of micro-local system, which urban agriculture and, you know, some of the that stuff, which is also really important, rooftop gardens, all those kinds of things, might be the tiny little doll in the middle, But you want to make sure you have all the other dolls in the middle as well, the domestic food system, the regional food systems, all the way down to those community food systems. And so, you know, what can you do locally to solve that? And I think that is looking at a larger planning environment. So that means what are the transportation issues you need to solve? What are the housing issues? Because often food security is going to be tied where people don't have affordable housing. So how do you start to bring affordable food into a community where you also need affordable housing? You know, so how do you solve problems in a systematic way instead of just throwing money at one problem or another? So for our average listener who may not be in a policy position or you know, may not be a mover and shaker in creating local agriculture, what, what are the things that they can do to support your work and support... I think as a, as a citizen, sometimes there's so many problems and there's so many things that we are called to help with. 
what are the things I can do that are easy to do that will be supportive of more food security for other people? And then where are the high leverage opportunities for the average person? That's a great question. I mean, some things you can start with are just, if you care about these issues, making sure that your community is supportive of those issues. And so that means if you want to shop in a farmer's market, you can work and make sure there is a farmer's market. And if you care about equity and food security, make sure that there are farmer's markets that are located in areas where low-income populations have access as well. You can make sure that they accept food stamps or EBT. You can, you know, make sure that your interests are reflected throughout the community. I think one of the things that we all can do really about these issues, but any issues we care about in the community, is try to to think about it from somebody else's point of view. Because I think we all tend to get stuck in the way we see the world and sort of what we need for ourselves and our own families. And yet to solve these problems, I think we really need to understand what other people need as well. And so that's where, again, if you want to have a farmer's market, make sure that that farmer's market is going to serve the whole community. Make sure the farmer's market's also going to serve farmers in your community and try to understand those things. I think people can get involved in affecting local government. And so that means, you know, go to, well, I I am in New England, and so local government is a very powerful force. So go to town meeting, you know, participate in a survey. Meet your neighbors. There are lots of ways to do civic engagement. And, And it really just means sort of getting out on the street and talking to people. So that I think we all should work on the issues that we feel passionate about. So I feel passionate about food and agriculture. So for other people who do, then look at your leverage points within your community to change that. In terms of sort of larger issues, every five years there's a farm bill. And that's a federal policy. It's probably the most boring thing that anybody um, can think about who isn't a wonk in this field. But in fact, farm policy and the federal farm bill has a huge impact on food security. So most of the funding, even though it's called a farm bill, most of the funding in it goes for nutrition programs. So, you know, 70, 80% of the funding is going to go to support SNAP and WIC and those kinds of programs. So you can lobby to make sure that those programs stay alive. It also affects sort of environmental management and conservation of our natural resources. So if you care about the environmental piece of agricultural and food production, then you can get involved in what's called the conservation title and make sure there are programs to keep land available for farming, to make sure people are using good environmental stewardship on that land. And there are rural development programs. So if you want to make that leap to sort of high impact, the federal farm bill actually has high impact that affects communities all across the country. Yeah, we were talking previously before the show about Puck Mickleby and Joel Mackauer's book, New Grand Strategy. One of the things they talk about in the book is, and I think that most Americans don't realize this, is the degree to which you know, nearly half of farmers' income actually comes from government subsidies, which is really related to that farm bill. The degree to which that farm bill is tilted towards big business as opposed to tilted towards small farmers, that is a huge high-leverage opportunity. If we could continue to support farmers through the appropriate subsidies, but but shift it more to support local farmers as opposed to big agriculture, I think that would have a huge impact on the food system. So 
Unfortunately, we're running out of time, so I, I want to thank you for well, thank being you. for being here today and for the work that you do. It's, it's so important. So thanks again. Well, thank you. And thank you all for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Infinite Earth Radio and Twitter by following at Infinite Earth Radio.